Welcome to the Diving Pod. I'm Ron O'Brien. And I'm Heath Calhoun. And I am Aaron Rooney. Once again, this podcast is brought to you by Sideline Scout. Uh, we just had our boys season start up here in Minnesota, and I rolled out the Sideline Scout system and the Poolside Live, and the boys were like, oh my gosh, this is way better than what we were using before. So make sure you get over to sidelinescout.com, check out everything they have to offer. Poolside Live is absolutely wonderful. It lets you rewind, slow motion, go frame by frame. Uh, it's it's by far the best video replay system in the business. So like I said, go over to sidelinescout.com, check that out, see what they have, get yourself a, a nice diving replay package there. It's it's the best money you'll spend. Wonderful. So just to start out, um, you know, Ron, we're super excited to have you on, super honored that you're willing to join us. Um, if you can start out, just go through your diving journey you know as a young kid um i found out in our first conversation that you're from pittsburgh which i did not know originally um take your time give us as much detail as you wish um throughout your journey as an athlete all the way up through coaching well um i grew up in pittsburgh pennsylvania um as i got got a little older and a little older um i didn't grow very much um I tried football. I was too small. Basketball, I was too small. Um, and there happened to be a YMCA a few blocks from my house, and they had an indoor swimming pool. So I ended up going there, um, and I learned how to swim there. And then uh, I uh, finally uh learned to swim well enough that I tried out for the swimming team and I did get on the swimming team. Um, and part of the swimming team of course was diving and they didn't really have any divers. So I decided, well, I'll give it a shot. And, uh, I realized that I was not great, but I was decent enough that I could dive in the competitions and do enough dives to, to do what was required. And then I continued swimming and diving through high school. And uh, I swam all the way through high school. And I swam everything from the individual medley to the 1500 freestyle. Um, And I was still only five feet two. And I realized when I was going into my senior year that swimming was not going to be my fortitude and I was not going to be able I was not going to be a good enough high school or college swimmer so I decided I would concentrate totally on diving and one of the key things that happened during that period of time was at the YMCA there was a a coach there who was the physical director who was a great teacher and a great mentor And he took me under his wing. And at the age of 13, he got me into the leaders club. And I started teaching when I was 13. Um, Just a little bit of basketball and whatever. Uh, And he stayed with me all the way through high school. And I was preparing to become an engineer. I really liked math and science and so forth. Uh, And the summer that I graduated from high school, Um, I watched him teaching swimming and diving classes and how much 
enjoyment he was having and how much fun the kids were having. And I decided I wanted to be a diving coach. Um, so he was a big factor. The second thing is one of the officials at in the Pittsburgh area knew Mike Pepe. I don't know how, um, but he said, I'm going to talk to Mike to see if uh, you can join the, the Ohio State team, which was at that time the best diving team in the, in the country. Um, and he arranged for my parents and I to drive to Columbus, Ohio. And at that time, you were allowed to do auditions. Uh, and he allowed me to go in the pool and do a few dives and met with my parents and whatever. <clears throat> and fortunately, he it wasn't a matter of him recruiting me. He allowed me to become a member of the Ohio State team. And there were eight divers, and I was eighth. Um, because I never really had much coaching. <clears throat> so I, I worked and worked and worked. And um, finally, and majored in physical education, taking most of the of all the science courses I could. Finally graduated. I became an NCAA champion in my senior year, which was amazing to me. Um, and then I went on to uh, be a graduate student and take master's degree courses in science mostly even though I was still a physical education major. And <clears throat> then I got into coaching after that. And I went on and got my PhD and that was in physical education also, but my uh, courses were kinesiology, exercise physiology, anatomy, medical anatomy, all those kind of things that I thought might help me be a better coach someday <clears throat> than somebody that didn't have that background. Um, and so I, I started coaching at the University of Minnesota, spent one year and froze to death. <laughs> <laughs> and Mike Pepe then decided to retire in 1963. And Bob Bartels was uh, named the swimming coach. And he and I had a good uh, uh, relationship during my uh, school years because he was also in physical education and a science advocate. Uh, so I became the diving coach at Ohio State in 1963. And that was really the start of my career. Um, I don't know what else to tell you, except um, my career turned out to be a heck of a lot better than I ever thought. Um, I was just, I started out thinking I'm going to be a high school coach I ended up being a diving coach um, at a major university. And that that's what really started my career. So as you were going through that, uh, Heath, Heath and I have a healthy uh, relationship and, and there's always been a tie between Pennsylvania and, and Minnesota. And our teams have always been really good rivals, good you know, healthy rivals. None, none of our teams, you know, really hate each other, but we were strong. Our, our teams were always strong. And when you said you had coached at the University of Minnesota, it just got me thinking like, hey, this was the first kind of relationship between Pennsylvania and Minnesota. And now here we are. 
we have a podcast and we're talking to kind of one of the originators of, of diving. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a great experience at Minnesota. Um, and it really was, uh, it was a very small team. And I started instituting my rules of, of what you had to do to be a diver on the team. And I started out with five divers. I ended up with one <laughs> at the end of the year. There was one, one diver, and he did qualify to go to the NCAs. Of course, he didn't make the finals or anything because uh, the diving was not a, a real strong program at that point in Minnesota. So I'm curious, um, what were those roles? When you, when you get to start your program at, at Minnesota, at Ohio State, what were those roles or those core values you had for your diving programs? Well, <clears throat> number one was be on time, which means when to me, and I explained to them, that means be early. Don't be late. And if you're late, you better have a darn good excuse. <clears throat> number Rule number two is if you don't feel great that particular day, come to practice anyway, do what you can. If you can't do anything yourself, then help some of the other people so that you, you learn something uh, even on a day on a day when you don't feel good, sometimes coaching other people opens a diver's eyes. Um, and the, the uh, other rule was um, no matter what happens, no matter whether you're, you have a good day or a bad day, or you have a good meet or a bad meet, put it aside, think about it for a minute, Get up, get back up, and get going. And and I will say I meant to say this later in the program, but one of the one of the sayings that I uh, coined over the years was there were two questions that you should ask yourself: What didn't I do that I should have done, and what did I do that I shouldn't have done? <laughs> did I say that right? Yes. What What didn't I do that I should have done, and what did I do that I shouldn't have done? Answer those two questions and get up and get moving and, and take care of those two questions and you'll do better the next time. That, that's awesome. That's great. Very good. It, simple and easy. So for most of our listeners who are, uh, I would say on the very young side on the whole diving world, um, you are, I would say is most famous for coaching Mr. Greg Luganis. He was a back-to-back -back Olympic champion in both the three-meter springboard and 10-meter tower. Uh, just fill us in. What was that relationship like between you and Mr. Luganis? And um, what, what was he like? How did you continue to push him um, through everything? Well, I first saw Greg dive when he was nine years old at the Hall of Fame Aquatic Center in Fort Lauderdale. He, and uh, he was diving one meter and I happened to be there. And <clears throat> I went over when the event was over and introduced myself to his coach and, and to him. And uh, I didn't say anything at that point, uh, but I came home and I told my wife, I just saw a kid that's nine years old. And if he stays in the sport, he is gonna be unbelievable. 
and I didn't see him again <clears throat> till he was 15. And he came to my diving camp. Uh, I saw him in a couple of meets, but nothing personal. Um, he came to my diving camp for two summers and we got to know each other real well. And then, then he went back to California and I was still coaching at Ohio State. Um, and he, he, that would have been around mm, 1965. Let's see, he was born in 1975 that he came to my camp. <clears throat> and then uh, we stayed in touch because we, we became kind of friends. Um, and um, I was able to help him with a couple things in the, in the diving camp. Uh, he didn't really know how to spot very well. And he was he had been doing front twisters all the time up until that point. And I taught him how to do back and reverse twisters. I didn't like the way he twisted forward. Um, it was kind of goofy coming off the board. Uh, and I figured if he learned back twisters the correct way from the beginning, that would be his twisting group to use, which, which is, and that's the way it turned out. Uh, but then, then I went to uh, California as the Mission Viejo diving coach. Um, and I must say, up until that point, <clears throat> doctor, doctor, excuse my voice, <clears throat> Dr. Sammy Lee did a great job of bringing him along. In, you know, in 1976, as a 16-year-old, he was a silver medalist. Um, but he still had some things he had to learn and whatever. Um, so in 1978, when I went to Mission Viejo, he decided to join our team with Sammy's uh, acceptance because Sammy was a, a full-time doctor, could only have practices certain times and didn't really have a program. Greg was basically the only one who was coaching, maybe one other diver. And Greg wanted to be in a more consistent program uh, so he joined the team at Mission Viejo. And I can tell you from the very beginning, Greg had a lot of problems as a youngster. And he, he would tell you the same thing. He was dyslexic for one thing. So he had trouble in school. Uh, he was gay, which way back then was a real problem. Uh, his parents were... Um, he was adopted, so he really didn't know his real parents at that point. And all those things kind of worked together to make him, um, in his personal life, very insecure. <clears throat> so I, my wife and I, my wife Mary Jane and I, um, basically made it our mission to help him as a person to gain confidence. He, he thought he couldn't speak. He thought he couldn't write. Uh, he thought he was a terrible student. Uh, so we worked on all those things with him. And as, as he progressed and got better at those things, uh, he became more confident as an individual. So a lot of our work was individually personal with him. Um, he was always a great diver. He had some faults, of course, uh, like every diver. Um, but 
his philosophy was, and a lot of young divers and the coaches listening might want to pay attention to this. He had problems outside the pool, personal problems, um, money problems, education problems, which he was dealing with all the time. And, and his feeling was when he came through the gate to the pool, he left all of that outside. <clears throat> Diving was his release. And, and he came in with a free and open mind and just loved what he was doing there. And, and he left everything else outside the door. And I think it's a good thing for any athlete and coach <clears throat> to be able to do, to make diving a separate world uh, in which you do certain things uh, and leave the rest of the problems outside and deal with them in a different uh, setting. And uh, we, through our career together, I coached him for 10 years. Uh, he became a member of our family. Uh, he lived with us at times, uh, on and off. Um, and we had a very strong personal relationship. And um, I guess because of that, he would listen to me when I coached him. I, I don't know what else you, you want to know, but... Um, how did I um, motivate him? I didn't have to motivate him. He was motivated. That was his way to prove himself to himself and to others. Um, and uh, so motivation wasn't a problem with him. Um, <clears throat> sometimes we'd, when he'd have a a difficult meet or whatever, we go through that the process individually of what I told Heath earlier, both of you earlier, figure out what, what we did that we shouldn't have done and what didn't we do that we should have done and fix it and let's move on. Um, so motivating Greg was not an issue. That's awesome. That's awesome. So so now, Ron, we're going to jump into some of our, uh, our listener questions. So we put it on a Facebook group and, and a bunch of coaches asked questions. So we're just going to kind of hit you with the questions that came up. So the first one was, uh, do you know where the term gainer comes from? I have a very short answer. No. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I'm old, I'm old, but I'm not that old. <laughs> hey, that, that's okay. That's uh, what's what's the old saying? Don't say uh, two words when one will do, and one will do. I I I, I would assume it meant gainer because if you didn't gain, you hit the board. <laughs> Fair enough. We'll go with that. That's what I'm going to start telling people. <laughs> the next listener question here was: How do you keep the divers' mental health in balance as much as their physical health? Well, I'm, I'm not a sports psychologist, <clears throat> but one of the things that I was talking about earlier is uh, work with them to leave their, their personal problems outside the pool. Diving is diving. It's not a life or death situation, um, and it's a totally different world, and treat it that way. And enjoy what you, what you can do in the pool and the successes that you have, learning a new dive, getting a higher score than you ever got, placing higher, winning a meet, whatever, and let that be uh, 
the building block for your mental health. Right. To take that, those successes and apply them in other areas of your life. Right. So how would you deal with an athlete if they weren't the best at leaving everything outside of the pool? What if it was just one of your athletes that came in and just struggled with that? How did you best help them? Well, I don't know that I have a clear answer for that, but I did spend a lot of time uh, in individual conferences with all of my divers to find out what, what they were thinking, how they thought, how they learned, um, what they thought of themselves. And um, by trying to find the personal side of the individual, um, I would then take whatever cues I got from that and use those to try to build confidence in them in the interaction in the pool. I think you might, and, and I'll, I'll make a suggestion at the end of the program, a sports psychologist could probably answer that a lot better. Right. right. So what was the best individual performance you have ever seen from one of your divers and what made it so spectacular that it still sticks with you to this day? Well, I'd have to say that there were uh, more than one. Absolutely. Um, but if I had to pick just one, of course, it would be Greg Luganis. And, and he feels the same way because we've talked about this. His performance on the 10-meter platform in the LA 1984 Olympic Games <clears throat> was his greatest performance. <clears throat> First of all, we had set the goal for him to, to break 700 points on the platform, which had never been done before. Um, and he did. I think he scored 710 or 715 points. And in the process, he did every dive in his list pretty much as well as he could do it. Uh, and it, when that was over, uh, the joy of having, having won the gold medal was one thing, but he was just as proud of being the first person, first man, to ever break 700 points on 10-meter platform. Absolutely. And that's something I've never forgotten. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, man. That, lead, that really leads right into the next question. Um, it's, it's a little bit, I would say, easier from a swimming mindset with taper. Um, but from the diving perspective, how do you train divers to peak at the right time? And, and what, it, what goes into that? Uh, before I answer that, I, my screen just went to something else. <laughs> we can still hear you okay. Okay. Yeah, we can still see you and hear you. Okay, that's fine then. Um, <clears throat> well, over the process of um, years dealing with preparing for major events, of course, at, in my career, it was the NCAA champ Big Ten or NCAA championships, mm -hmm. or then the U.S. national championships, or Olympic or world trials or Olympic games or world championships and whatever, but it doesn't matter what the level is for every diver coach and team. There is a key event or key events that they want to be ready to do their best in. And, and I did basically three things. 
the one, the first one is a little more complicated than the other two. First, uh, six weeks, and that may be much longer than a lot of coaches and team schedules can allow, but mine did allow six weeks of preparation for the main event. And during that six weeks, I did not try to uh, make any major changes in the dives that the diver was doing. They, at that point, they had been trained for weeks and months and they were doing the dive the best they could at that point. And my job was to make them ready to do the best dive they could in that major competition. So starting six weeks out, we trained six days a week, three days a week, usually Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we did meet simulation training, which, and we did it in a way that was as close to the meet competition situation as possible. I'd have them come in, I'd give them an X number of minutes to warm up, 30, 45 minutes, whatever, to go through their dives. Uh, and I, I would coach them, but I would coach them not in a te real technical way, but that, oh, you were a little too far out or you were slightly over or uh, you didn't uh, do this on the entry. Uh, something general like that that had to do with scoring, not changing technique. And so then um, we would get someone to announce. They would, they would fill out their diving sheet ahead of time. I have all the diving sheets. I'd get somebody that was going to be the announcer. They would announce the dives. I would get three judges. If I, if I couldn't find three judges other than the divers, I made some of the divers judged, you know, they rotated through. <clears throat> and uh, we went through the meat list on, the, on that day one time. And then um, the days in between Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, I would, I would meet with them right after we had the meat simulation day and we would talk about what were the what were the really good dives and what were the dives you really need to work on. And then in the days in between, we would work most of the time on the weaker dives. We would do the good dives, but maybe do one or two repetitions. And then we work the rest of the time on the weak dives. And one other thing I did later on, which a lot of people might not be able to do, but some coaches might be able to if they know the people, uh, Dick Wilson announced almost all USA diving meets, world trials, Olympic trials, and whatever. And I contacted him and got him to agree that he would tape record announcing the diver's dives. So I had it, I sent him a, the list of dives for the divers and video or audio tapes, and he would tape record their dives on the audio tape. And then we would play that prior to each dive. So the, the diver would feel like, whoa, I'm really at the meet. And one of my divers, Mary Ellen Clark, said that was did so much good for her 
because she would get on the board and she'd hear Dick Wilson's voice and she'd think, man, this is, I'm, a, I'm at the competition. And it really gave her a chance to over and over practice diving well in that situation. That was the first thing I did. The second thing I did was I made a best ever tape for each diver on the team. Back in those days, it was tape. Now it's probably what CD. I don't, I don't, I don't know. What. I just on the, probably just on their phones now. Well, may, maybe, uh, but well, we would, we would take, we would take their practices or, and their competitions. We had them on, on video and we would take the best dive. I would take the best dive from each, uh, each opportunity that they did and put it together on, uh, on a video as the best list that they were capable of doing at that point. And I would have them uh, give it to them and tell them to go over, watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it, <clears throat> and try to put yourself in the situation that you're in a meet. And uh, the third thing I did was I used to take all my divers into a room. We, we used the uh, weight room at Mission Viejo, uh, but a, a room that was dark. And I'd make them lay down on the floor, turn out all the lights and have them. I would tell them, I want you to go through each of your dives in your own mind and feel what it feels like and visualize it. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and until you have done every dive in your list, in your own visualization, the best that you can do. And when you're done and you have done that, you can sit up, but be quiet because other people might still be uh, working their way through it. And we would do that at the same time. So that they would, they had a lot of visual visualization training, as well as meet uh, simulation training. Those were the three things that that I did uh, on a regular basis. I I love that idea of creating a best ever video for them. That that was new to me. It was something I'd thrown out in my own head to to make, but what that that would be extremely beneficial. Cause like you said, you can put yourself in that situation. Oh, I remember doing that at that meet and you can redo it again in your head. And then just when you get back up there for your top level competition, just kind of push play on what you already did. Yeah. And, and my goal in doing all these three things was to make the meet like second secondary. I've already done this yeah. 25 times. Yep. Um, yep. It's no big deal. Um, that that's awesome I, I love it um you know going to the next thing sitting sitting where you're at now with all the knowledge you have go back to 13 year old ron o'brien that got selected in that leaders club to start helping coach some things what advice would you have given to yourself with everything you know now what would you go back and and give to yourself at 13 years old knowing you're going to go on to coach Hmm. 13, man, that was a long time ago. <laughs> uh, well, <clears throat> I would say that the best thing I, 
could have told myself at that point was to learn to learn from losing. And that's maybe sounds negative, but um, learn how to deal with it and move on and make find something positive out of what you did that will make you better the next time. And that goes back to that same saying I gave you. Um, but one incident happened to me in college and I, <coughs> excuse me, I think I was a sophomore and I believe it was the Big Ten Championships at Ohio State University and I did not dive well. I did not do anything near what I felt I was capable of doing. And I was always hard on myself. And probably at 13, I was too. Um, and I would pout and I would get a terrible looking face and uh, I wouldn't talk. And um, I'm sure some of the people listening have been through that. Um, and one of the swimmers saw me and the way I was acting and the way I was looking. And he grabbed me and he said, come here a minute. And he took me in front of a full length mirror we had in our locker room area. And he said, just look at yourself. And I looked at myself and I had to laugh because I looked like death warmed over. Uh, and he said something to the effect is, it's, it's not life or death. You, you'll have another chance. And it yeah. gave me a whole new outlook on things uh, that when things get really bad, that's when you need to step up and, and uh, be your best friend, not your worst enemy. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. And I, will, um, I will say I carried that into the Olympic trials in 1960 when for the first time in many years, I think since 1948, uh, the International Olympic Committee only allowed two divers from each country to enter. And I finished fourth on three meter and third on 10 meter by just a few points. Um, and there was an exhibition scheduled that night that I was supposed to dive in. What's going on there? It's okay. I muted Aaron because there are some people talking behind him, so I just muted him real quick. Oh, I I can't see you because uh, I've got – I'm afraid to click on anything because it might disconnect. <laughs> um, <clears throat> But that lesson um, stayed with me through my experience at the Olympic trials in 1960 when I didn't make the team. And I, I talked to myself just like uh, I did after the swimmer put me in front of the mirror and said, this is not life-threatening. This is not the end of life. You need to go on. And I decided at that point uh, I was going to um, – move on. I was done diving because I was not going to make it to try to make the 64 Olympic team. Uh, and I was going to move on to coaching. And that's when I really uh, learned, I think, 
um, that you have to work individually with each diver as an individual, find out what makes them tick, how they think, how they learn, and work with them to always keep a positive attitude. Absolutely. I think I got the I think I got the audio figured out over here. Just got a couple of people working late. Um, <clears throat> next next listener question here was, what do you think of the prevalence of this new hop hurdle? And then what is the trade off of power versus balance uh, for age group and developmental divers? And when and if you would recommend using that style of hurdle? Well, <clears throat> I never coached the hop, hop, skip, and a jump um, with a two-foot push-off to a one-foot into the hurdle and and working the board as much as it's being worked today. But I I would say one thing, that takes much more skill than the uh, traditional approach um, to maintain your balance, your body alignment, you're getting to the correct distance on the end of the board. And the little bit of diving I've watched, even at the uh, Olympics this past summer uh, and some other meets, some very good divers do do not, some of them get anywhere near the end of the board sometimes. Um, As far as teaching it to a youngster, I have not had the opportunity or the experience of doing that. The coaches are much more experienced than I am. But I would think when you teach the two foot uh, or the hop, skip and a jump, jumping off of one leg onto one leg and whatever, just to keep move the board more. When you do that, I think would depend on the balance and consistency and body alignment of the diver, each diver, um, before you would move them to that approach because it's much more demanding. And so I wouldn't just arbitrarily teach everybody on the team to do a two-foot jump to a one-foot takeoff into the hurdle. Yeah, I think it's an individual uh, situation. And, And the other thing that dictates when you do it is the degree of difficulty of the dives that are required for that age group, uh, whether or not that person can uh, execute the dives that are required to be competitive uh, with a a normal approach. Uh, and, And if so, I would keep them with the normal approach as long as was feasible and switch them to the two two foot takeoff uh, uh, hurdle action into the into the uh, end of the board um, when when they were very accomplished at the uh, at the traditional approach. Right. I don't, right. Know, I don't know whether that helps or not, but no, it it definitely helps. Uh, I'm I'm kind of an old school coach when I come to the uh, the high school setting that I coach in and. And, you know, my high school divers, they, they watch diving, they're, they're passionate about diving and they see people doing hop hurdles and they're going a little bit higher. And I say, you know what, you're, you're right. That is a hurdle that can be more powerful, but also the trade-off is, you know, what if you, you miss your leg or your knee buckles, you're just 
not prepared for it, not ready for it. And then you fall off the board. What happens when you get a zero? And so I'm, I'm definitely an old school guy. I don't necessarily coach a hop hurdle. I prefer the, the, the balance versus, Hey, let's just see how high we can go. But you're exactly right. There, there comes a point in time. If, if you can find that balance, it's, it's a big one. It's a big hurdle. And, and if you can do it right, you can get a little bit higher. Yeah. And I think you'd, you'd work into the two foot jump to the one foot takeoff into the hurdle in, in increments by having them learn to rock and rock and move the board with one foot at a time as they make, make their steps out to the end and learn, learn to work the board first before you go to the two foot takeoff. Um, Because then that, allows them to get more spring out of the board and gradually learn to handle the extra movement that's required before they go to the final step, which is really hard. And I have to say, when I saw the two foot jump starting to take place, first of all, the rules must have changed because I think when, when I was coaching, you had, you couldn't put two feet on the end of the board, except, coming down out of the hurdle um you guys could tell me that i don't know but um i thought well why not just let him go out to the end of the board take three springs and go (laughs) what's the difference (laughs) yeah let's just put a trampoline up there and you take three bounces and go (laughs) i think we'll get some crazy results from that um so so kind of switching gears here you know what are your thoughts on where USA diving stands today um, as an organization, as um, our athletes are performing? Um, what are your thoughts on that now compared to whenever you were involved in USA diving and whenever you were coaching? Well, first of all, let me say when I was coaching uh, with other uh, really great coaches, specifically and most of all, Hobie Billingsley and Dick Kimball, um, the United States, by uh, accident, I guess, had the best diving uh, program uh, for finding divers and developing them in the world because we had a club system and then we had a high school system where uh, kids could go from their club team onto a high school team. And then if they were good, they could go to a college team and a lot, most of them on scholarship. And that was a developmental program that allowed us coaches at the college level and then, and beyond to find the best uh, talented people. And it was a motivational program. Um, now that's all changed. The unfortunate thing is, in my opinion, USA diving and U.S. diving, I shouldn't say, because I don't mean just the organization, but U.S. diving is back where we were 50 years ago. There's no, no major talent ID national program. Uh, there is no program for educating and uh, helping the, the club coaches who are the first ones that have contact with the divers um, and, and the high school coaches and the college coaches. 
um, to give them the background that they need to do the best job with the age group that they're working with. And that, that includes areas like, uh, well, first of all, talent ID, we don't have it. We did have it at one time and it got, I don't know, disappeared. Um, but if we had a national talent ID program, that would help everybody um, because you would find more talented, more divers and more talented divers. And then if the coaches had a, uh, um, a program where they could um, either go to or doing at home virally, virally and Zooming wise, whatever, areas of sports psychology, uh, exercise physiology, uh, biomechanics, uh, and all, all of those things, um, we could, our coaches would have more information to do what they're trying, to, what they're doing in the other countries, namely Russia and, or China and Russia, but there's about three other countries that are ahead of us now, and they all have government funding, which we don't have and probably don't want to have, but we are not utilizing the talent that we have in all the various associated areas that could help our coaches do a better job. And I think our club coaches um, are doing a great job, they, but they're not getting any help. I mean, they're teaching good dives. They're teaching good technique. Uh, they may not be physically developing the, the athlete uh, to their uh, full potential because they don't have the help and the background to do that. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Yeah, I like that a lot. We're, we're probably going to revisit a lot of those same things later. Um, so we'll keep that one brief. But uh, for now, uh, another listener question was, who was the most famous person you got to meet? And how did that go? <clears throat> well, I didn't meet very many famous people. I'll say that. Um, <clears throat> they don't. Most of them don't come to diving events. <laughs> <laughs> not much. Not much has changed then. <laughs> uh, but the most famous, probably, uh, under adverse conditions, was President Jimmy Carter. Oh wow! <clears throat> because of the 1980 Olympic Games right. and what he did to the uh, Olympic program by not allowing us to participate. Um, and we all went to the White House for a hot dog, and <laughs> we got to got to meet him personally. Um, and I I can say um, that over the years, the fact that the athletes didn't get to compete <clears throat> bothered me more and more as time went on because that was the only thing that the United States did. I don't believe there, there was any other major um, entity that suffered like our athletes did. <clears throat> Absolutely. And the second person that I met on a real personal basis was Kenny Rogers. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and we, were, we were in Australia. I was with my team. We were competing in an Australian meet uh, and Kenny Rogers was, we went to his uh, uh, live performance uh, 
and somebody that I guess whoever got us tickets told him that the uh, U.S. team was in the audience and and he recognized us and then invited us all backstage after the uh, performance and we we all got to meet him and talk to him and get our picture taken with him whatever he was great that's awesome those are the only two I can remember that that that's great um you know switching back for our last listener question um before we get into Aaron and I's questions was you know when you watch diving now do you think that the dive execution has improved that much better over, you know, past diving, or do you think our judging standards have become more relaxed? I, I don't think that the diving performance has improved um, drastically over what was done in years past. Um, It's, it's obviously more acrobatic. I think that, Form in in diving today is not as important as it used to be. Um, there's a lot of big split tucks, flat feet, bent knees, um, legs flying apart, and whatever. But I think the thing that's moving the judging is the entries are a lot better. Mm-hmm. No question about. It. There's more time spent on entries. Uh, the rip entry came into uh, use. Uh, actually, Bob Webster in the 1964, um, 60, actually 60 Olympic Games, and then for time after that, uh, was the first diver we saw that used a flat hand entry and got close to a rip entry. Uh, but then it developed over the years. Uh, and now entries with the flat flat hand entry and the movement underwater to create air for the water to go to rather than up in the air uh, has changed uh, the finish of the dive. And, and that's one thing that sticks with everybody that watches a dive. How did it go in? Yep, absolutely. So, so now as we switch gears going into the questions that Aaron and I had for you, um, you know, this one, I was really, really excited to hear your answer here. Um, you know, what were your goals when you started coaching, when you first began, you know, at the university of Minnesota and how, and how did those goals change over time for you? Well, I gave that question quite a bit of thought and I can honestly say because of my experience of not making the Olympic team and having to deal with that, um, and at the same time, have, having won a couple of reasonably uh, decent events, um, my goal starting as a coach and throughout my whole coaching career was to help each individual reach their maximum potential. And it had nothing to do with whether they were winning or whether they won the Olympic Games or they won the Big Tens or whatever. My day-to-day goal was in helping them to maximize their talent and reach their their maximum potential, whatever that happened to be. And it was just as important for the diver that barely made the finals or didn't make the finals as the one that won it. 
And that, that was my goal all the way through uh, my coaching career. And I developed my rules of, of expectations and performance and whatever based on what I thought was going to help them to focus in and do the things that they needed to do to reach their potential. Um, and uh, I, th I think that's as, about as much as I could yeah. say. Yeah. That's pretty, pretty straightforward, pretty simple. And yet it had, it holds a whole lot of weight. You know, you didn't put anything. It sounds like on, on you, it was okay. I'm going to do what I can to make them be the best they can be. And you know, the results will just follow. I love that. Yeah, um, well, my job was not to take play favorites to give them all the same chance, pay the same amount of attention to every one of them give them everything I, each one of them, everything I had uh, to help them uh, reach their potential. And one thing I would like to say um, before we get uh, uh, out of the Zoom here is as I went through my coaching career and then when I was done coaching and looked back at it, one thing I think all the coaches that are hearing this or may hear it, need to realize, and, and I don't think when, I, I didn't realize it at the very beginning of my coaching career, but I realized it more and more as I had former divers come back and say things to me. Um, you are, for most divers, maybe not when they're seven or eight, because their parents are the most influential, but when they get into their teens and on through even through all the way through college and into their mid-20s, the coach can, and in many cases is, the most influential person in their life. And you are not just teaching them to do a front three and a half. You are teaching them how to be successful and happy in life. And that is much more important than where they place and how they dive. And I think coaches need to realize if they haven't already, that they have a significant, powerful influence on their divers' lives. It, it, it kind of chokes me up a little bit hearing you say that. That's... Um... Thank you. And, and you're not necessarily wrong. Uh, both Heath and I are very, very young in our coaching journey. And um, yeah, it's, it's cool to kind of take a trip down memory lane with you, go back through your story, go through your athletes and, and hear you say that it just resonates for sure with me. Um, and, and going forward, you know, just making sure that you're a positive influence and you're helping them in a, in a positive and constructive way, because you're exactly right. You know, I have a, I have an athlete who struggles a little bit with things here and there. And, and it's like, okay, do you, you want to put your head down and you want to work really hard? And then at the end of this, you're going to be successful, whether you hit the dive or you don't, you're teaching that work ethic and they're going to take that with them everywhere they go. Um, getting back to the, the questions here, the one I wanted to ask you, what was the hardest part for coaching of coaching for you? Hmm. Well, 
what I wrote down was, um, of course, having a, an athlete not not perform up to their capability was difficult to watch because as a coach, I'm partly responsible for what they do, what they're able to do. Um, but, but I can remember a couple of times um, when my team, whether it was six divers or 10 or 12 or whatever, 20 at one point, um, did not do well as a team. Then that made me feel really bad because I felt that if one person didn't do well, that's a personal individual problem. When the whole team doesn't do well, it's your problem. You didn't do something right. And then you need to ask yourself those two questions. What did I do and what didn't I do? And come up with some answers and change it so that your team doesn't go through that again, that they do perform up to their capabilities or as close to it as possible. Yep. Yeah. So, so looking back, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, we came up with this question just today for you is who's an athlete that maybe sticks out to you that had all the potential in the world that maybe just didn't get the recognition that maybe they should have. Well, I thought and thought about that. Um, and the one athlete that I thought had the potential and, and all the um, previous history and successes to be an Olympic champion who did not come close was Kent Ferguson. Um, and that was in the 1992 Olympic Games. I believe he was favored to win the event and he ended up sixth. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time with him uh, and, and it basically went back to what we've touched on previously, some things going on outside of the pool that were really bothering him and not allowing him to do what we talked about, leave it outside the gate and concentrate on the diving. He just, and he's told me this, he just couldn't focus like he normally did. And I, I, he was the one diver I had that I felt should have been an Olympic champion that didn't make it that far. Right. I shouldn't say the only one, but the most um, prevalent or the most right. obvious. Yes. Sure. Yes. And Kent, please don't call me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he and I have stayed very good friends throughout life. So good. He he yeah. knows looking about. Good deal. Well, okay. This next one is a, is also a late add to the, the queue here. You've clearly dealt with having enormous expectations. I want to go back to Greg Luganis again, um, winning Olympic gold and then having to kind of uh, back it up four years later. How did you handle those expectations? In my mind, there's two ways to go. You can continue to say, you know what, there's always somebody better. You've got to keep pushing 
And then there's the other flip of the coin where you can say, you know what, you are the best, but you need to stay the best because everybody's coming after you. How did you handle those tremendous expectations? Well, first of all, I think at, uh, at the end of the games in 1984, when he won two gold medals and made it without question to be the number one diver in the world, um, he was considering retiring. Um, and I talked to him individually, like I did with all my divers. I, I really tried with my divers to be inside their head as much as possible. Um, <clears throat> it was a thought process he was going through. And what I told him was, if you want to really be considered uh, one of, if not the greatest diver of all time, there's only um, one person who's ever won four gold medals in the Olympic Games, and that was a female, Pat McCormick. No male has ever won four gold medals in the Olympic Games. Uh, and I think that you can do that and uh, that will go a long way towards solidifying your part of diving history. Um, and then the other thing I stuck in his head was that the most number of U.S. national titles ever won by a U.S. diver was 28, I believe. And at that point, he was probably around, I don't know, 18 or 20, maybe 22. I, I'm not really sure of the number, but I said, if you could win more national titles than any other U.S. diver, and U.S. diving is the greatest diving country in the world, then that sure would go a long <laughs> way for cementing your place as the best diver ever. <laughs> Th those were the things that I used to change his mind and get him thinking about the future and what he he might be able to accomplish. Um, and and I, I, I think <clears throat> maybe if he hadn't jumped on those goals, he might've retired in 84. Right. Right. <clears throat> That's kind of a cool story. Just you, you continue to have such a personal relationship with all of your divers and you knew Greg was a very self-motivated person to kind of come up with that goal and say, you know, you could be the best ever. I know you're self-motivated. You, you kind of put it back on him saying, hey, let's, let's make this happen. I, you, that, you can't have that conversation without knowing your athlete. And that is just, that's awesome. Well, that was one of the things that I tried to do. Um, in addition to coaching in the pool was outside the pool. To, I, I had um, individual meetings with all my athletes on a regular basis. Uh, and I asked them questions based on what I saw them doing and how, you know, how I felt their mood was. And I'd ask them personal questions like, what's going on in your life? And, and just really, you know, try to get into their head. Um, and the other thing that, that I wish I had spent a little more time on as a beginning coach was figuring out what was the best um, method by which they learned. 
there's four four basic learning methods: um, feeling, seeing, hearing, and reading. Most divers are feeling and seeing, um, but some divers go one or the other much more strongly than the other. And how you coach them, um, it, it's it's important that you know whether you need to show them, uh, whether you need to have them go through the motions themselves, uh, or you can just explain it to them and they'll get it. Um, some some athletes, you just say, "Well, you need to do this and this and this," and they can visual they visualize it and they can do it. Others, they they need to go through the motions themselves on on the pool deck or in dry land or whatever. Um, and so it, I think it's imperative that the coach knows each diver's best sequence of learning and utilize those uh, to teach them. Yep. So next question for you. Um, how has the adjustment from coaching I mean, it's not, you coached for so long into retirement. What has retirement been like for you? Boring. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, when I left U.S. diving, um, there there has been virtually no contact uh, for the past. I, I retired as high performance director in 2010. So for the past, um, what, 13 years, um, no, 11 years, um, I haven't really been involved with diving at all uh, in any way, shape or form. Um, So uh, it created a void in my uh, life. And what what I've done uh, to take that up First of all, I created uh, Divers to College. Yes. Uh, as because I, as I traveled the country and did clinics and talked to high school divers or coaches and their parents, I realized that they didn't they didn't know how to connect with high school, with college coaches and college coaches in a lot of instances didn't know how to connect with the diver unless the diver was already a top level name in the sport. Yeah. Um, so I created that um, that program in order to help divers and coaches and parents to come together. And I hope, I don't know if it's been a real success, but I hope it has helped some people. Um, and I've done a lot of reading, um, but the, the main thing that it kept me, has kept me going in retirement is I look back at my career <clears throat> I'm very happy with what I did. I wouldn't change a thing. I love the divers I work with. I'm good friends with a lot of them. Um, And as I said before, you have an influence on their life. And I was lucky enough that some of them contacted me or met me uh, again and said, you know, what I learned in diving has really helped me do the rest of the things in my life. That's, That's awesome. That makes it worthwhile. Absolutely. I'm really glad you mentioned divers to college as well. If anybody's listening, please go look at that site. 
um, it, it's a wonderful tool and, and it's, it's pretty straightforward and easy to use. And, and all Dr. O'Brien here is talking about is, is, Hey, here's how you get access to these coaches. Here's how you get access to, um, what colleges even have diving programs. You know, there's a, a whole world of diving schools that range in all kinds of abilities. It's not that you have to go do one, division one or bust. And, you know, Heath and I have, have had a fair amount of people reach out to us saying similar things of, Hey, I'm really glad you guys are doing this podcast. My son is a diver here, um, in this state, you know, he's looking to dive in college is, is anything out there for his ability? These are his dives. And, you know, that's been fun for us to at least guide some people in certain directions, but you know, this website is even better than what we can do. So that's pretty cool that you have that there. And, um, you know, big, big asset in the diving community to have that. Well, I hope it's helpful. Yes. Um, one, one other thing, one question that was uh, written down here that uh, I feel like I should give you a little input on is who should we interview next? <laughs> we are. Uh, we haven't quite gotten to the signature questions yet, but that's where we're headed right now. So okay. we'll get there. I'll let Heath, right. Heath have to ask that one later. But uh, my first signature question here is, you know, you talked about learning from losing earlier. Um, my favorite question here is what is your favorite failure or just your best learning experience? I'm a big believer in, you know, when, when we're losing, we're learning more than if we're constantly winning. So what would that be for you? Well, obviously it was in 1960. Well, it was a combination. I guess I wasn't uh, intended to be on a major U.S. team because in 1959, the Pan American Games, they took three people in each event, and I was fourth. In uh, so the 60 trials, they took two, I was third. So um, that was, uh, you know, that, that those were devastating to me, but they taught me a great lesson. Um, I don't know how else to answer that, but that was my best learning experience. And I went from being a hothead when I lost to being more um, intellectual and focused on how to do better. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I like that. That's that, that goes a long way. Uh, the next one here is, what can USA Diving do to improve? You said you were a high performance director for a while, retiring in 2010. Uh, just, you know, from here going forward, what can we do as a country to improve? I know you touched on some, um, some you know, talent ID and some coaches education. Uh, what, what else would there be? <clears throat> well, um, be before I retired in the late 90s and the early 2000s, up until, I don't know, 2004, 2005, somewhere around there. Uh, at, at the uh, urging and intelligence of a female diver who dove at Indiana and then worked um, as the education director for USA Diving, um, Janet Gabriel, <clears throat> Most people probably never heard her name, but she initiated in USA Diving the move toward bringing uh, experts into the sport 
first of all, for them to learn the sport, uh, learn the uh, not just the competitive aspects, but the performance aspects and so forth, and the mental aspects and all that. And she put started to put together a, a team of um, people uh, that included an orthopedic surgeon, two orthopedic surgeons um, that helped um, divers avoid injury. And when they got injury, how to take care of them. And if they needed surgeries, they took care of them then. And they actually did it for divers around the world. But then there was a sports psychologist, an exercise physiologist, um, a biomechanist. Uh, and we were starting to, because China was starting to take total control in the late 90s uh, and still are doing it today. And we also had the Russians and they had programs for their coaches and they had talent ID and um, somewhere along the line in the period between 2005 and 2010, I'm saying, and definitely since then, those programs were all abandoned. Um, and those people were kind of let go from the sport. And uh, I feel that right now, the best thing that USA Diving can do is go move back in that direction and, and engage people that have an interest in doing it, uh, like the sport. Uh, they don't have to have any background in it. They can study it and learn it. Um, and those people put together programs for the coaches. And, um, and as I said earlier, we need a, a, a highly publicized and promoted talent ID program. <clears throat> And that's, to me, that's what the coaches need to help them. The coaches are doing their job and they're doing the best job that they can with what they have to work with. But in my opinion, they're not getting a lot of help. They need right. help if they're going to, yeah. they're going to coach up to the standard of the Chinese or Russians. Now, uh, Great Britain um, and a couple other, uh, who else was ahead of us? Canada or Mexico, mm -hmm. um, the coaches need help. I'm not saying that the coaches don't know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. They need additional information. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and especially, <clears throat> especially with the athletes that are getting into the sport until they're uh, going through their age group programs, that's where they're made. The, the, the college coaches and the U.S. coaches uh, finish them off. Yep. They, they add maybe a little more finesse and do some certain things to it. The athletes get stronger and whatever. But un, unless they are given, first of all, the correct techniques, which most the coaches are pretty much on top of that, but a biomechanist may be able to help them do a better job. Uh, the, the young athletes need to improve their flexibility and their core strength. Um, <clears throat> and uh, that can be done 
through physical training. Uh, they also need to, which has come up several times in our conversation, uh, help with dealing with the mental problems. Sports psychologist. Yep, absolutely. And the, how, how many club coaches have those um, uh, things available to them? Not many. Not many, I would guess. Right. And I think it's USA Diving, if they want to get back on top, that's the direction they need to go. Absolutely. Um, you know, so now putting your coach's hat back on, what was your favorite drill to do with your athletes? Hmm. Well, <clears throat> you're probably talking about a physical drill. Yeah. Well, it could be anything. We we've left it really open-ended. It could be physical, mental, dry land, water, whatever you feel was the, the, your favorite drill to have your athletes do. Meat simulation. I, I wrote everything you said down on your meat simulation and I'm like, I'm going to do this with my athletes. Um, and, and one thing I didn't say during that meet simulation is to set us, uh, <clears throat> based on what they've done in their meet simulation, and you've added up their scores and you see how it relates to people that they're going to be diving in competition with, I always try to set two, um, two goals. One, which was um, I wouldn't say easy to attain, but should be attained. It's not, it's not a stretch. It's based on what you've done and what your scores and what your total score would put you in, in this place. It would put you in fourth in the finals in whatever, or it would, would win this meet, whatever. Uh, something that is, um, relatively attainable and then set one that's a stretch like if you if you really put it all together really do a hundred percent of your best diving this is the goal you should reach and and I always tried to have two goals primarily so that when they finished they had one that they could reach and it would make them feel good and then one that they were striving to reach, and maybe they didn't, but there's the next time. Um, and so I, I tried to, to use the goals so that they could get satisfaction out of one and stimulation out of the other. Right. Very good. That's really fun. Uh, sorry, I'm going to butt in here for a second. I create a little spreadsheet for my divers, and it almost has exactly what you said on it. We have a goal. Uh, score that everybody would be happy with. And then we also have a, a dream score that, you know, if you have your best dive on, on that you've done all season already, here's what that top max score would be. And, and, you know, that's a huge thing for them to realize and, and em embrace because they're worrying about more themselves and they're controlling their diving rather than looking around at everybody they're competing against. And they, they kind of stay within themselves a little bit. Heath, one thing I do, I do want to mention as well and, and kind of pick your brain, Mr. O'Brien, when I do meet simulation, 
we go as detailed as we possibly can as well, even more so. And I go same time of day that our meet will be at. So if we have a meet and typically our practices in the afternoon, uh, when school is out, when, when we're done with school and a lot of times in the past, our big meets are in the mornings on a Saturday and the last couple of weeks of school leading up to that meet, I would tell them, Hey, we're going to have morning practice and we're going to start at six 15 because you need to get your bodies used to practicing and warming up and being active at that time of day. And by the time you get to the meet, we'll have done it for two weeks. And you're going to look around on the pool deck and see a lot of tired bodies. And you're going to look at me and say, Hey, thanks. I feel really good. <laughs> well, that's the kind of thinking and coaching I'm talking about. Uh, and that's great that you do that. And, and I agree with that totally. Uh, and one other thing I didn't say about meat simulation that I just popped into my head was I used to make the divers when we were doing meat simulation, they weren't sitting around the pool deck watching the other divers. I had them pick a spot somewhere away from the diving area that you'll be by yourself like you will do at the meet. And you, if you like to listen to music, then you listen to the music that you would normally like to listen to at a meet and do everything the same way. Come to the, to the board when the two or three divers ahead of you, whatever is comfortable for you and do everything exactly the way you want to do it at the meet. So you are rehearsing and when you get to the meet, nothing is unusual. You just do it exactly the same way. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, so now next to last question here is what is the best advice you have either given and or received? <clears throat> well, I don't think I have anything new to add to that. I think I've already basically covered that when I talked yep. about that Ohio state swimmer that showed me what a dismal person I was. Uh, that was the best advice I ever got without even saying anything. Just look at yourself. Um, and um, I, I, can't, I can't come up with a specific advice that I've given any diver. I've given so much advice to so many people. Um, and it's based on their response to my questions. Yep. Like if somebody didn't do well in a meet, I'd, I'd make, I'd make them do the talking, not me. I would ask them a question. Well, what was, what was going on? What, what was going on in your mind? What'd you, what'd you think about this? What'd you think? And let them tell me everything that was going on with them and then have a discussion about what needs to be changed and how yeah. it can be changed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It makes perfect sense. So, and then the question you kind of wanted to get to earlier, who would you like to hear us interview next? Well, I think based on some of the questions that were asked uh, of me here, one area that would be very helpful to the coaches, especially because uh, a lot of them are working with young athletes who are in their formative stages um, is to, interview a sports psychologist. And <clears throat> I have one in mind uh, who has worked with 
all my divers, and he's worked with uh, young divers as well as old divers. He's also worked with uh, a lot of high-level performers on Broadway, uh, singers, dancers, piano players, um, performers, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his, his expertise is performance. Mm-hmm. And I think he could probably give you a lot of insight into some of the questions about how do you deal with these mental problems and whatever. Uh, And I I don't feel comfortable giving you his name, but I would be glad to call him and talk to him about it. And if he is available, uh, I will pass the information on to you. That'd be wonderful. Wonderful. I, I have one other person, but I haven't talked to him. But I think he probably would do it, and that's Luganus himself. That that would be awesome. That would be a dream come true. I did have a couple of uh, a couple of interactions with him. I saw he had gotten back on the board uh, about a week ago, maybe two weeks back, and and he said he was potentially interested down the road. So we're very, very, very interested in having him on. That would be a dream come true. Well, he's got some things that I never taught him that about listening to the board, about knowing when you're going to miss the board and making changes so that you catch it, about when to breathe and how to breathe. Um, he's got a lot of things that would help coaches to help divers. And I'll be willing, I, I talk to him frequently. I will uh, talk to him about it and see if he is agreeable. I don't know what his schedule is like. He's most of the time pretty busy, but... Uh, I will encourage him to do it. That that will be wonderful. Um, you know, before before Aaron kind of does our 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 send off here, I just honestly thank you so much for joining us. I told you before we got on. I promise I'm going to call you about every three four weeks, and I, if no one else is going to engage you with diving talk, I will because I would love to pick your brain and ask questions and continue to learn. So uh, expect that phone call in a couple weeks, sir. Okay, that's fine. I'll, I'll do whatever I can. And I've enjoyed talking to both of you. And I hope that all those people that uh, whoever's out there listening uh, felt it was worthwhile spending the time. Very good. Thank you so much. Uh, if you're listening, hit us up on Instagram. We are at the diving pod and our email is the diving pod at gmail.com. Again, at my family's business online store cowingrobards.com we have t-shirts and hoodies for sale you just have to enter the coupon code dive pod at checkout that gets you uh your shipping covered i'll uh, i'll pay for your shipping we get it to wherever you need it to go um again just wanted to say thank you to to uh ron o'brien this was again one of those bucket list dream come true type of conversations um, been at the top of the diving world for many, many years. And just to pick your brain and have a conversation was a true pleasure and a true honor. And I'm excited to, uh, to have a relationship going forward and um, be able to, to make a phone call to one of the greatest coaches of all time. So I appreciate it. And thank you. Well, thank you. And good luck to all you coaches. All right. We'll see you next time. Okay. Take care.